and welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell and this series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. We sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. Today we're speaking to you from the old Marlebone Town Hall here in London, where we have the great pleasure of speaking to London Business School Professor of Organisational Behaviour, Dan Cable. Professor Cable's work focuses on organisational change and leadership mindsets, with key messages around ensuring that we have a life and a career with purpose, and how this benefits the individual, the employee and society at large. He's published three books, won numerous awards, and has more than 50 articles published in top scientific journals, including the Harvard Business Review and the Sloan Management Review. He frequently contributes to The Economist, The Financial Times, The Wall Street Journal, Business Week and CNBC. And Dan's clients include Coca-Cola, Deloitte, HSBC, IKEA and Twitter. An absolute joy to talk with, Dan is an engaging speaker with a gift for taking deep theoretical ideas and turning them into simple, insightful stories. We joined an excellent and passionate conversation covering the puzzle of purpose, being alive at work, the dark side of transparency, finding the right fit and creating real change. It's a conversation that did not disappoint and one that you won't want to miss. Professor Cable, thank you so much for speaking to us today. So your um, career to date has been uh, puzzling out, you know, life, and has been puzzling out the interaction between career and purpose and how to make uh, fundamental changes. Uh, could you, you know, describe how you personally um, find yourself feeling alive at work? That's great. It's a great question. Um, I want to start off by saying I went through a little stage where I put myself to sleep at work. Uh, and that has created a foil or a contrast that has helped me ever since. But I made myself into my own robot by figuring out how to make a certain thing work in the classroom and in terms of publications. And then I got into a groove. And that groove turned into a rut, and that rut lasted about six years, I'd say. There were painful times because I started being bored of me and bored of my career. Uh, And thankfully, I lifted out of that and started thinking harder about not efficiency, but impact. Um, Not repetition, but joy. And I've invested really deeply in that, and I still do. It's, it's funny, just recently I introduced a new class with Julian Birkinshaw um, and Jeremy as well in operations management on resilience. And it's that sort of reinvention that I keep trying to do to myself to, I would say, to keep it alive at work. And so was there like a particular tipping point that made you kind of go, no, I, I need to be refocusing after six years? Mm. Or was, was, it the, was it the moment or was it just a mm. gradual process? Well, you know. know, it's funny, Chris. Looking back, one doesn't know. Um, it, it's really, really difficult to know what caused what in real time. But I can tell you that I got very sick. I started feeling really bored with myself inside. I knew that. And then physically, I was diagnosed with a lymphoma. And that was a crack right across the face by reality. And when I came out the other side, the chemo and all that, um, it helped me reprioritize. So when people talk about the sort of bump in the road that you would never ask for, but you were glad was there, that was my moment. I never would tell somebody, hey, For kicks, why don't you go get cancer? (laughs) You never would make such a comment. 
But at the same time, it really did what you said, which is it, it forced the issue of looking at the way I was living and the way I was working and made me question if I could do that better and, again, more effective, less efficient. Okay, okay, okay. Wow. Yeah, that is... Um yeah, it's funny. Straight in, right? You know, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And and you wrote a Harvard uh, Business Re- Review article in, right. in around that, yeah. So, um, well, today we're here to have uh, conversations fundamentally about about climate and it's about about all issues around sustainability and purpose. Um, have you seen uh, business has evolved um, with with a view to purpose and right. you know, with with a particular sustainability? Thing? Absolutely. Well, I'll start off with the sustainability capital S, and then I'll move toward the purpose element of it because I think that's where I can add the most. But I've been shocked and delighted. You know, you like me are a little older. When I was a student, when I was getting my uh, master's degree. It wasn't something you talked about unless you were from California and ate a lot of granola. It, it, it just didn't come up. If it did come up, it was kind of a bit of a sad thing to bring up. It, all profit. It, it, it's just what you lived and died by. Cash was king and it's all profit. And it, it just made you stand out if you cared about it. And it was sad, real sad, but odd. I would say the same about purpose. Because I was in organizational behavior, and front and the center of that are human beings, and humans care deeply about purpose and impact. Always have, I think. It's, I think it's part of what separates us from many of the other smart animals, maybe the smarter animals. It's one thing that really makes us human, and yet to talk about organizational purpose and to think about the employees caring about it it was something where you had to sort of swim downstream and play with the other fishes or something. It, it, it wasn't the front stage. And again, it, it made me feel like if I cared about it, I did that at my own cost. And I'm, honestly, I'm just so delighted. I, I'm, it's unpredictably strong now. You really wouldn't be able to run an organization now without being able to talk about what the purpose is to the point that I think that's a problem. So we should come circle back around to that. I think that that demand for your purpose statement is actually at this point creating more harm than good uh, and, and creating an industry. So we'll talk about that. I would say that when it comes to the broader, more sustainability issues around the environment, let's say, um, around energy and the way that we use energy, I'm delighted but less knowledgeable. I'm, I'm so thrilled that we're having the conversations and making that priority. And I'm thrilled to see, too, that we're actually starting to put metrics around evaluating firms and that, that um, you know, there's sort of contributions in that area. But, you know, that's not the area that I sort of had my foot in the water, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and those, uh, the metrics are, they're a very interesting um, development. But as you say... And I think that that's kind of what you're driving at when you talk about purpose. You can be a little too focused on the metrics. And um, if, and you're only recording one particular thing, and that means you might be ignoring several other things. Yeah. But I think maybe before we dig a little, little bit deeper into that, environmental stuff has very much been linked towards to purpose, and purpose has been linked towards environmental stuff. Um, but we haven't quite defined what purpose is in this context. Would you mind kind of just giving us your Absolutely. definition of purpose? Yeah. And I want to talk about it in two ways. And I think it's really important because the distinction between them causes the problem that I was referring to. Um, for me, the real meaning of purpose is why you do what you do. It's the impact that you have on the world and why that's meaningful to you. 
So it's a very individual-based construct, if you will, and it has a lot to do with our feeling inside that what we're doing matters. So if it has purpose, that means it connects to what you feel is meaningful. And we have a lot of evidence that that not only promotes your own health and how long you live, it also gives you an energy and a resilience when you hit obstacles and bumps in the road. And there's really good evidence that for a human being, purpose is not only life and health giving, but it helps us achieve our goals. So that's wonderful and powerful. I know quite a bit about that. At an organizational level, it's why we exist. It's why we all get together 8, 10, 12 hours a day and pull in the same direction. When we get in that direction, who benefits? Why do we care about that? I think that those are linked, but I do think that they're different. And there's a sense in which by allowing organizations to kind of create a narrative of their purpose that sounds really great on a coffee mug. You know, you put it on a mouse pad or on the website, it sounds wonderful. It often leaves out what the real people do. And there's so many examples, funny ones. I mean, I can, I can probably make you laugh. But not funny in the sense that it's not deriving the benefits at the human level. If the firm spouts a gorgeous... Um, almost like a balloon level sense of purpose, you know, like um, banking for food or um, creating longer, healthier lives. It might be a really wonderful thing to say, and it may even attract job applicants. But if day in and day out, we're not actually doing much to promote longer, happier lives, or we're not actually selling food as part of our banking, it leaves people feeling, what worst, cynical, like they've been duped or like the, somebody's trying to squeeze extra energy out of them and at best, null. Sort of, I hear it, it just doesn't affect me. It's, it's fine, I know the firm needs that. I accept that it's good to have a purpose statement, but it doesn't give them those benefits of health or longer life or resilience or motivation. So I would love you know, to talk more about that. I feel it's a problem. And... So how does how do firms connect their, their bottom line with purpose? And, and maybe if I could add one more step to that. It's how do you get individual employees to feel, and I mean emotions, around the purpose so that their behaviors connect to that purpose. And then my opinion and some research suggests that does affect the bottom line. They work smarter, they work harder, they work more creatively, they innovate in real time to solve the firm's problems. There's all these beautiful bottom line impacts, but the thing that I'm most, um, I would say intrigued by is how do you personalize purpose? A really interesting idea on purpose of going through organizations, and I can imagine how an organization can sell their purpose to their employees, employees can get behind purpose in, say, the renewables industry, where you can think, you can feel, oh, I'm doing something good. Yeah. But how can you build something, build a purpose into, say, a legacy industry, like legacy might be a little harsh, but say a sunset industry like the oil and gas, yeah. where, where you know, it's, it's, you know, you've got a finite lifespan within the industry and fundamentally the business is not doing good. You know, how, how, can, you, how can you, as a manager, mm -hmm. as someone who's, whose job it is, you know, instill a purpose in your Absolutely. employees? Absolutely. Well, I think there's a couple of options there. Well, let's, let me 
kick it off and then you decide if you want to go in this direction. Um, as of now, we're still using a lot of oil and gas. And I would say that a lot of people would love to be able to do that more efficiently, more safely, would like to be able to do it in such a way that um, you're sort of top of class within the industry. And my gut tells me that you'd be able to do two things. One would be hire people who feel like there is still some hope in that industry and who even care deeply about that industry. I, I don't think that that would be impossible in today's world. Um, it wouldn't be everybody, and it might be a number that's decreasing, maybe in some weird ways, almost like the tobacco industry um, since the 50s until now, but there are still plenty of smokers out there, and those smokers still would be uh, happy to take the extra 15 or 20% in order to work in a sin industry, if you know what I mean. And I don't think that they would look down their nose at what they produce, but it's becoming a smaller and smaller labor market, I would say. There might be a um, sort of step one has to do with uh, hiring and trying to find people who would already be predisposed to feel that. I'd say the second thing is, whatever it is that we're doing, we are having an impact as we sell it and as we produce it. And I think that if you were an individual manager and you could help people see who we impact and how, it's not always saving the world that we need to feel purpose. It's seeing our impact firsthand. So let me give you a tiny example of that. Um, say it was the case that you worked at Microsoft and you were helping organizations, let's say a Tesla with their supply chain and maybe helping them digitalize or something like that. Well, you're working at Microsoft though. It might be the case that you as a programmer helping that organization Tesla digitalize you could feel pretty purposeless in that role if you were sort of at headquarters just being told what things to produce and you weren't really sharing what you were producing with the end user and you're just in a black box and part of a production machine, almost like an assembly line. And you're the hands on the computer and you're writing code and coming up with good ideas. If it were the case, like Microsoft does in Vienna, I was there, um, the country manager takes the programmers on site and they interview people at Tesla and say, tell us about the problem and how it affects you. And then they go back and do the programming. Simply having an understanding of who is going to be affected by what I do and what is the problem that I'm solving ignites them in terms of the felt sense of purpose. So the important thing I'm saying here is same role, but by being able to see who it is that we're affecting made a big difference. Another example of this might be um, Ryan Buell at Harvard University did a study where they went into a, a lot of different cafeterias where people were making food. And I mean, like, in the morning, it would not be high-class food. It's like eggs, bacon, and pancakes. Or at lunch, it would be like soup and grilled cheese and so on. And in half of the restaurants, they just let the chef see who he or she was making food for. They put a little iPad in there. What they learned is that their job satisfaction went up st statistically, significantly, substantially. And they also learned that they made the food in a more customized way that the customers thought was 13% better. In the other 50 restaurants where they didn't allow them to see the end customer, they didn't get that effect. And there are so many studies and so many examples that it's not always that you're saving the world by making these people breakfast. That's not really like the kind of purpose with a capital P where we celebrate it on a balloon. You're making them breakfast, and it, you know, it's a breakfast that might cost six quid. 
it's the idea that I see who I'm having an effect on that lights up a part of our brain that seems to give us some dopamine, seems to make life feel more exciting and meaningful. So in the oil and gas industry, you might, if you were someone who's working, say, on the health and safety side, yeah. you could say, I'm working on this, I'm making those guys, those, those, those guys and girls' lives better. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping them safe. And let's take two more examples. Just, I'm, I'm, I haven't thought this through, but let's say that you were um, the person in charge of putting together the budget report. Four times a year, you had to put together a stack of papers, if you still did that, that was like um, a tome. It's the case in many, many organizations where there's a set of processes or scripts to produce that thing with the figures and the tables and what needs to go in there and what's the order of that. And so they spend all their time and energy putting that together. If you simply ask them, who reads that? A lot of times they won't know. Who uses that to make decisions? Not really sure. We just have to do it this way. How do they use that chart? I actually don't know. This is just something we always have done it this way. In my own world, now this is with uh, um, the Navy, the U.S. Navy in the United States, when I was in that situation and I went and found the people who were the decision makers and brought them in, there were huge hunks of that report that they never looked at and didn't even know why it was in there. The ability to strip out work and increase purpose was so easy to do, but you had to try. And that creativity of curating this is a little bit of a funny way to say it, but as a manager, curating a purpose experience where you see firsthand, oh, here's why we create these reports. Even though it's still just creating reports in an oil and gas company, I see that my eight or 10 hours a day affect that person who makes decisions. So it's funny. Um, and one other thing I might say is the actual drillers, it's a very dangerous thing to be doing. And it is still vital to the world and it also is something where you have to either use your smarts or get hurt. And I think there would be a way, again, I'm not, I'm not in this domain, but if I went into that domain, I'll bet you there would be a way to focus on human lives, focus on delivering a necessary good, could even call it a necessary evil, but for now it's still necessary, that we do it in such a way that we're saving lives, that we're not allowing people to lose fingers and hands and arms. Um, I'm going to stop with this because we're, we're well outside of my scope at this point. But I would say that in every organization that I've worked with, there have been low-cost ways to connect people with the impact of what they do all day in a way that lights them up. So your definition of a purpose-filled um, organization is... It's an organization where the individuals feel a link with their individual work and not with a mission statement. Yeah, that, that, and and I, if I could put those together as well as possible, it would be the seamless integration of the organization's purpose being powerful, timeless, humane, sustainable, and all the individual employees believing that their work, their 8 to 10 to 12 hours a day, help achieve that mission. The, the, it has to do with the alignment and the understanding that why I do what I do is toward that collective mission that we all share. I, it's just very rare. Mm, sounds great. It, it's transcendent, yeah. if you can get it. <laughs> yeah. are, are there any particular examples? You say they're doing that really well or they're, 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 they're on the right path? Yeah. 
um, instead of me saying these are the ones, I'll just talk about a couple of experiences. Um, lately, I've been learning a bit about Microsoft. It started with that initial um, thing. And the more I learn about the sort of learn-it-all organization and not the know-it-all organization, and the more I understand that leaders at the very top are bringing this into meetings and they're, they're encouraging that kind of psychologically safe space where you're allowed to criticize, you're allowed to try out a new idea, I would say that that is starting to align what we do outside for customers. We help them learn. We help them basically create a digital environment that is more effective for them. To do that, we have to be curious and learn and not act like we already know. I'd say that that possibly is one organization that's been impressive to me. We'll, we'll learn more about that, I'd say, going forward. Um, another organization that I've been kind of interested in, have you ever heard of TD Canada Trust? Um, listeners can go check it out online. They have a load of cool videos. But something cool happened there where the senior leadership team said, we as a bank are suffering from a lack of trust in the local communities. Banking isn't seen as very trustworthy anymore. So they did a thing where they invested in every single local bank branch got a hunk of money. I think the, the amount was 40,000 Canadian dollars. And what the CEO said is, I'm not going to tell you exactly how to use that money, but I want each branch over the next year to use that money to create better relationships with their local community. And so all these different bank branches did different things. Some did really simple things like low-fidelity things. Like they just gave the money to a local boys and girls club for like disadvantaged kids. And then they spent their own time and energy volunteering there. Low-fi connection though. Other ones, they ganged together, like five different branches ganged together. And they all put their 40000 together. And they created a piece of tech that got to understand their customers' basic lives and needs. And as those customers came in, they kind of wowed them with personalized gifts or personalized opportunities. If somebody really loved baseball, they'd have the picture of their favorite team be there as they arrived and sort of like connected them. Really interesting ideas. In, in one of the examples, one of the bank branches, they worked with the longest standing members' families to basically create a sort of reunion and so when the person was in there visiting, doing their business with the bank, doing their car loan or whatever, as they walked out, there would be a sort of a family reunion in the foyer. Now, the point is, any one of those decisions may or may not have worked. But as an organization, they invested in a collective purpose of being relevant and trustworthy to the local community. They allowed local branches to try things out, experiment and learn. And then they got to learn what was sort of most effective there's something pretty powerful about that that I think is irregular, to say the least, but it, 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 it worked. It sort of paid off, both in terms of local energy at the branch level and TD Canada's um, brand at the sort of corporate level. When you're talking, you remind me of... Um some examples that happen within within the kind of renewables industry, the, the climate industry, where people are there's there's a small subset of people who are really really good at doing stuff and really really good and genuine about um, making change, but then you get a whole bunch of other people um, who are more interested in looking like they're making change, and like the, you know, the expression we have is greenwashing. Is there is there kind of an equivalent purpose washing? Let's come up with your, it. I call yeah. it purpose fishing. Myself, purpose fishing with right, a right. P H Y. Almost like fishing online. Yeah. I, I do think that there. Um, 
There's a lot of pain that you can create when you as a senior leader come up with something that's well-crafted verbiage, but then the people within the firm don't buy it. The cynicism that can result from that is so much worse than neutral. Um, I'm going to go a step too far here, but it'll be fun. There's a human emotion called disgust. Disgust occurs when what we're seeing or hearing or smelling or sensing might infringe on our health. So it comes out of, for example, in, in physical health, um, if you walked up to a pile of meat that was rotten and it smelled that way that rotten meat does, it'd be very hard for you to eat that because your body will disgust you. It'll tell you you can't handle that. Now, even if you tried, it would throw it up because it knows you can't handle that. The body's very smart that way. And I think that when it senses senior leaders crafting a well-documented story about our senior purpose, and it doesn't match with what I know we do all day, and it doesn't match with what we've done our whole careers here, it just stinks. And the, the result is almost the same where it's like, you're just trying to trick us. I don't want to be tricked. I don't want you to use my emotions. I, either be honest and authentic or just make money. But let's, let's not do the thing where we pretend that I'm in this because you said the nice thing. And smart people become really turned off by that. And most people are very smart. <laughs> the bodies are smart. and They know better. And so anyway, I'll stop, um, I'll stop with that particular example. But I will say that um, in my own experiences, there's more cynicism than inspiration out of these purpose statements that are now in vogue. You need one. It's a tick box exercise. You take two days off. Senior management team comes up with it. But I don't know that it creates the effect that we'd wish in the sort of hearts of the people that are supposed to be affected by it. You have written a lot about quite how difficult it is to create a purpose-driven organization. Uh, what would your, kind of your, your advice be? Like, how can you do it? At the bottom level, remembering that a sense of purpose is more like an emotion and less like a cognition. That starts to steer the ship in a certain direction around creating experiences and not thoughts. When you craft a purpose statement, that's pure thought. Even if you create a video of the purpose statement, it's still more of something I'm learning and less of something I'm feeling. If as a leader in your industry and in your job type, you're thinking hard about creating visceral experiences where human beings get to feel something firsthand around the effect of why we do what we do, I'd say you're moving toward a purpose-driven organization. A tiny example of this, I'll give you a good one and a bad one. There's a company called Rabobank in the Netherlands. I'll start with the bad one. Um, not so long ago, they came out with this banking for food. And it made a lot of sense because they started as a cooperative a couple hundred years ago. They got farmers together. They shared their money. They weren't even a bank. They were a cooperative. If you needed a roof put on because it got blown off in a storm, you'd get the money from us and we would share. If I needed a new cow, it was a sharing arrangement. You know, fast forward 200 years, there's a global organization that makes a lot of money. They're investment banking. They're all this. Well, <laughs> some of the most senior leaders were in a program and they were kind of lamenting how they didn't really buy the purpose. And I was like, why that? Like, well, we're investment bankers. Like, we don't deal a lot with food. Like, it's just, it's not. Another example of this would be 
because this is an organization that cares a lot about farms and farming, and it does, and it's deep heritage, and it's genetic, it's gene pool that cares about this. I know another senior leader there that was onboarded with a whole group of people when he first became a leader, where at 5.30 in the morning, they were taken not to corporate headquarters, but out into a field. And they walked through that field to the top, and they met with their basically chief purpose officer at the time, who talked about the reason why the firm exists, and it all came out of farming while it was getting light. And then they walked down into one of their customers that was a farm, one of their longest standing customers. And then they had breakfast with the farm owners, the husband and wife team, family, who talked about how hard it was as a mid-sized farm to make money in today's world. And he will never forget it. He said that it was one of the most visceral experiences of why we do what we do. And 30 years later as a leader, it's still affecting the way he leads. And if you just look at those two examples, you can see one is an actual visceral emotional experience and one is kind of a slogan. And it has all the difference. Not that one's right or wrong. It's one is felt and one's thought. Could you kind of boil that down into kind of maybe kind of a, a, a couple of points on what a manager can do if there's a mismatch Absolutely. between your, you know, your, your purpose and your team's purpose? Absolutely. Uh, the first thing that I would say is try to think hard about how each job affects somebody else and make sure that at least quarterly the people are able to get in touch with who is affected or what is affected in the real world. For example, if it's an architect's firm, Sometimes the architects go out and see the buildings they built. It's that simple. Yes, it's not as efficient, just like it's not as efficient as leaving the Microsoft computer software engineers do their programming. It's less efficient to take them into Tesla. However, like myself, we work a lot better when we don't work like robots. We get a lot more engaged with our work and our lives if we're able to craft it and see the impact of it. So that's one. And I think that that one is, you know, very low cost opportunity. I think a second one, it's riskier in a way, but it's getting groups of employees together to talk about what they feel matters about what they do, allowing them to articulate what matters to us about the work that we do. Sometimes it might be different from how it feels to corporate leaders. Like, for instance, if there's a brewing company and they literally spend 8 to 10 to 12 hours a day putting beer into barrels and beer into bottles. Corporate might talk about putting a smile on every consumer's face. It just doesn't maybe touch them. Maybe what matters a lot to them is how um, they, they, they make parties happen. Or it might matter to them that, um, that they provide work and vibrant local communities. You don't always know until you get in there and you kind of let them reflect on what seems to matter to them, I feel like that's a second important way to, to get the pulse of what people are talking about. And if we could just take us back to climate for a minute. Um, so what I'm getting a real sense of is that it's really important to personalise, really important to make or to, to have a connection that you grow um, internally yourself. You, you feel that yeah. bond on a, on, a, on, a, on a kind of intimate personal level. How do you then take that across to a really big macro issue mm-hmm. like like climate? Like how can you how can you get a purpose yeah. to something that is really it's 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 not immediate? Well, I really enjoy that question, um, and part of it's because it is a real challenge for me. I don't have a pat answer. You know, some things that are coming to mind that maybe we can just kick around a little bit. 
it feels to me like if an organization was treating climate change really seriously, and it did get a panel of people together, almost in the sense of a hackathon, where you gave people the ability to form their own teams for 24 hours. You say it was a 500, 600-person department. You took 100 people out of that department random, and you said, for the next 24 hours, work with whoever you want, form small teams. But at the end of this, you're each going to present, here's what we think we could do locally to solve that mission. And then some of those, then you have senior leadership, listen. You have each time, each team present out, here's what we worked on, here's what we learned, here's what we think we could do. If you had senior leaders listening to that, getting the ideas, and some of them would be A-plus ideas and some would be C-minus, but you're not going to punish the C-minus and you're not going to give more money to the A-plus, but maybe what you do is you invest time and you say, okay, I wonder if we could start to try to do that. Would you be willing to lead that team? Um, I could imagine that resulting in something where people felt part of it and felt heard and I can imagine leaders getting very grounded local ideas of how to solve that bigger problem. I also think maybe this is now getting to be a little bit more of an investment. Leaders could give people a day a quarter or half a day a quarter to actually go and solve some of those problems. You know, I don't know what that would be locally, but again, that might even link to the first idea. You know, here at London Business School, Going paperless and moving toward paperless, we're still not there. We're moving toward it. There's 20 things that we could do better, different. The way we use food and throw away food. I'm sure there'd be ways to get more of that to hungry communities. But what I'm saying is we're efficiency-oriented, and so we're not always looking at that question. We're looking how to teach classes better, how to publish more. We're, We're sort of turning the wheels that mean progress but we're not always turning the wheels that mean sustainable environment. And sometimes those wheels might even seem like they get in the way of each other with limited time in a day. So um, I love your question, first off. I actually think it's probably the most practical thing that we're talking about right now, which is locally on the ground, are leaders willing to invest in allowing employees to come up with localized solutions in a hackathon-type matter? Are senior leaders willing to let the employees spend half a day or a day, a quarter, pursuing that in almost a volunteer capacity, almost like the TD Canada approach, where you would go on sort of on site and try to create the effect that you wish to talk about next year? So do you have any reactions or any thoughts about that? What what I said about the hackathon coming up with grounded, localized ways that you could attack? Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I, I think I think it's a great idea. But the uh, my kind of reaction yeah. is, you need to have a certain level of scale to be able to do that. A certain mm. amount of amount of a balance, a certain amount of a, a P and L to be able to do Absolutely. that. It's a bit difficult if you're talking because in in the, mm-hmm. in the environmental world, mm-hmm. there's it's a, an awful lot of much much smaller smaller um, organisations going around trying trying to do things, and it's really hard to just say, okay, well. You know, of our, if, if you're 500 uh, employees, as you were suggesting, and 100 of them uh, go off and go off and do this, yeah. you still got 400 left. Okay. You can still pretty much function. Right. But if you're 10, right. absolutely, I think that that's that's right. I also, it's funny, just with a little smile on my face. In my own experiences, when there's 10, those 10 probably have a good sense of purpose, even if they don't agree. In my own experiences, small organizations build a lot of almost entrepreneurship within. I guess you could entrepreneurship within the entrepreneurship where 
people are scrappy and struggling just to keep the boat afloat. And it's not so bureaucratic that you feel that you're a cog in a machine and not noticed. People are looking for ways to have an impact. Like, for instance, they might be a salesperson, but then if it needs to get out there, they might become a delivery person in order to get the sale there. Then it might be that while they're there, they're kind of noticing there's a competitor's product there. So now they're doing sort of corporate espionage. <laughs> you know, they're, they're sort of doing uh, due diligence around, and they're bringing that information back. At least in my experiences, the sense of purpose is often greater in small firms. And then as the firms get bigger, the sense of purpose becomes paycheck. Fair enough. And if you were in one of the small firms, but you felt passionate about something, about, say, climate, yeah. and you wanted, but the rest of the people around were too busy looking at their own, you know, like mm-hmm. their own their own job, like the really important things yeah. they need to be doing now because in a, in a startup type situation, yeah. you're really frantically busy. Yeah. How would that individual get their own sense of purpose out into the, you know, the wider workforce? Absolutely. I mean, What springs to mind is this notion of contagion or modeling is another way to say it. But if, especially if it's a if it's a leader, it's somebody that people look up to and listen to, and that person spends his or her own time, whether that's volunteering or just acting in a way that is future-proofed, you know, a way that is thinking about energy or thinking about the climate, people will notice that for sure. If it's somebody that's very low in the organization, then your span of influence is smaller, but the people right around you, you know, and there are probably smaller and larger instances of how this could work in the real world. But um, when I say emotional contagion, are you familiar with that literature, that phrase a little bit? It's it's something that um, over the last five years, I've become more and more familiar with. The word contagion is almost a naughty word these days, isn't it? But this sort of a contagion is that our emotions sort of imbue the environment and then the people around us pick up on those and and often are, are attracted even if it's negative. So as to say like one bad apple can really spoil the barrel. If you have somebody that's doing bad, unethical behaviors, people notice that and sometimes follow suit. But the opposite's also true. If you have somebody that's leading the way, literally showing through example, a way of being more ethical, being more sustainable, being more energy conscious, that also gets noticed. So that's not probably the type of management leadership that is um, teachable It's more almost modeling through your own behavior and caring about it for real has a way of um, just trying to transmitting to other people. Yeah, no, contagion is a great word for that. Mm. It really is a great word for that. I'd like to to, uh, discuss uh, your book, Alive at Work. And, Great, you know, thank you. you know, yeah, fant- fantastic thesis of all about um, motivation and how work is fundamentally boring. Yeah, <laughs> often, <laughs> often, often. <laughs> uh, would you mind kind of briefly explaining the, the thesis behind? Absolutely. Uh, well, let me tell you how I think it fits into this program a bit. It feels to me like one of the elements of sustainability is keeping humans mentally and physically healthy in a community. I feel like that is something that organizations often destroy. Uh, through overuse almost. Uh, And the book looks carefully at a part of our brain that seems to be one of the pivotal levers of this. It's, It's this seeking system. Some people call it the ventral striatum. But it's this idea that there's a part of our brain that from birth, you know, part of our kit, we're born with it, it's innate, 
It urges us to interact with the environment and learn from it and then look for cause and effect. That seems to be what this sort of you know, system or this circuitry in the brain does for us. It may have evolved across time out of some other circuitry. It may have even been hijacked. But now what it seems to do is reward us with dopamine when we follow that urge. So when we learn from the environment, when we're trying new things, when we're looking for our effect on the environment, the body gives us this dopamine, which makes life feel different. And this is what I think I shut off in myself. Okay. Um, and there's a, kind of, there's a fundamental tension there between kind of old command and control type, type, type mm-hmm. measure mm-hmm. systems, measuring systems, and the more kind of freedom-orientated, creative-orientated mm-hmm. kind of new, new, new systems you, be, you were talking about, talking about in the book. Can you kind of talk yeah, a little, little bit about, about how, they, how they interact? Well, I think that there's something really paradoxical in what organizations today need to do. And so I'm gonna cross-reference Julian Birkinshaw's work on the ambidextrous organization here. There was a time not so long ago when, let's say 1880, 1900, when we as humans decided on this new way of building stuff, (laughs) and it had a lot to do with assembly lines and hyper-specialization, and everybody knows a tiny little thing, and we were able to count how many of those tiny little things they did, and then reward them if they did it really well, but then punish them if they didn't do that really well. And that system of control, it's creative collective control, it really was valuable. And that innovation, that you know, industrial revolution, it really changed our ability to like create at scale and deploy at scale. So I'm not going to say that it's bad. I'm going to say that it created certain demands on the human brain what part of the brain served really well would have been like a fear system or an anxiety system. It's not necessarily bad, but it focuses you on the threat and it focuses you on the task. Well, back then the world didn't change quite as fast. That's the big insight. (laughs) It's such an obvious thing to say out loud, but back in 1800, 1900, 1900, um, like Henry Ford is a great example that I talk about in the book, is they made the car and an assembly line in one color, for 13 years. The idea that consumers' taste didn't change for 13 years, obviously it's irrelevant today, that we don't have 13 months today, much 13 years, but we still do a lot of the management practices that activate fear and anxiety and threat, where we have KPIs and we're watching everybody and you have to hit it just at the right time. That assumes the environment's kind of consistent. If we're in a world where every four months it's a whole new world, then having pre-built KPIs that go a year or two years out, they start to seem kind of ludicrous. And yet we're trying to run organizations that way. We're, we're activating those emotions of threat and fear and anxiety around you know, these KPIs and rewards and punishments, but it keeps changing so fast. This other part of the brain, the seeking system part of the brain, it does work a lot more with agility Because what it's trying to do is be curious about the environment and then look for cause and effect. It's trying to learn. It's curious and using dopamine to reward learning. That's a very powerful system that leaders could be using in in an age that demands a lot of change in learning. But we're mostly shutting that part of the brain off in our big organizations. And when you brought up things like hierarchy and when you think about top-down bureaucracy... Those are great in low-change environments. They get really unstable in high-change environments. 
Whoever's at the top has to keep learning and learning and learning and then teaching everybody below how to act differently. And they're going to get that wrong eventually. You can't keep pace to it. And so people like Julian have made real names for themselves with the paradox that great organizations somehow do both. They, they somehow mind the day in and day out store of meeting promises on time at the right quality level while exploring leadership in every seat is one of the phrases. At every single seat within your organization, the people locally are looking for better, faster, different, more effective ways of doing their jobs. And then they feel safe speaking up, speaking truth to power. That sort of a culture, well, while I'm not saying it's easy, is possible to create. And my gut and the evidence suggest that the closer firms can get to balancing the frame of what we have to meet in terms of regulations and KPIs and controls and policies, that's a frame in which we operate. But the freedom of how we operate is leadership in every seat. Um, you've been using the word environment a lot, but you've been using it in a slightly different sense to, to, to what, to what, uh, what for most people who sit in this chair are talking about. Yeah. Uh, if we just take um, this whole idea, this whole idea of like for 200 years, yeah. we've been teaching people to be, to be acting in a particular way and take that into the environment in the, the macro sense and the, like the world the sense. The world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nature. <laughs> Nature, exactly, exactly. How, how, have we been, in the way, has the way you've been treating people from organizations as workers um, had an impact on the world? Absolutely. Well, the quickest answer that I'd like to respond with is the assumption that burning people out was okay and even a strategy. I, I, I've watched that dwindle as an assumption it's waning but it sure isn't gone i i genuinely feel that um from a listen i never met henry ford I heard he kind of was a jerk but who knows but i'd say that part and parcel of that system of industrial management where we that's like where we kind of invented management in, in a way it started with the assumption that people are expendable and you, they literally built the system so that you didn't have to train them much because you could pop one out and pop another one in that day. And the idea that the motivations were on money and not intrinsic, it was a way of making humans dispensable. I still think there's an awful lot of, in law firms, in consulting firms, in you know, uh, investment firms, I mean, in academia, I would say that there is um, a way of thinking which is start a bunch of people, a bunch of them won't make it. That's fine. We don't want most of them anyway. The ones that burn out, that's fine. Then they're not our problem. We'll just kick them out. To me, that's something that both is going to have to change if we want to talk about sustainability and we want to talk about human health and mental health and we want to talk about keeping the knowledge that you invest in local like within your organization. It feels to me like lots of firms haven't made enough progress in that domain I also think it's the case that if you invested in that sincerely, you actually made it so that people in the organization felt there was a balance and there was a purpose to what they did and that what they did mattered, the bottom line would be affected because of smarter work in terms of innovative work, in terms of creative work at any level. I mean, again, low-level chefs or call center operators 
could feel inspired to deliver greater service at, at that level, at the local level. Yeah, so uh, if, if you kind of boil it down, it's if you're kinder to... If the whole system, the whole, the whole, the whole management system, the whole operating system that the world works on, is kinder to on a human level, yeah. then humans might be kinder to the planet. It's pretty interesting, <laughs> yeah. isn't yeah. it? I wish I could think bigger, quicker, but I would say that there's probably something that's happened, where you know, and I don't know when it would have been. <laughs> along the way, let's just say we hijacked a system and allowed the metrics of the system to create its own logic and that we almost became slaves or we allowed ourselves to become slaves to it so that gaming profitability, for example, at any cost allowed us to not only be unethical and immoral and short thinking, but celebrate it. Almost like the greed is good 1980s thing. It, almost like that's what we should be doing as shareholders. That's what we should be doing as servants of the shareholders. I do think that shifting, along with that shift, would come how should we be handling employees? What should be our role as stewards of that relationship? In that employment relationship, what are the unwritten norms and expectations? And I guess I'm saying a lot of firms are still in that more mercenary mode of as soon as there's a bit of trouble, fire you know, 12,000 people, rather than say, would there be ways to reuse ourselves to, to form a relationship that's more familial and less um, transactional? But, you know, to be honest, I don't have easy answers around that. I know that if there's no profit, there's not going to be a purpose. You know, I'm, I'm smart enough to know that. I'm probably not smart enough to know how do the firms that do this best philosophize what they're doing? How, how do they create a sustainable, profit-wise and for the, for the world-wise, the real environment-wise, how do they think of that in a way where the assumptions of all the leaders kind of spell it out daily? in small, granular actions? That's, it's, that's a, again, that's one of those great questions. That's the, it's what we need to be solving, but I don't have a pat answer for how a firm can go about solving that tomorrow. Very difficult. Yeah. Do you want another really difficult one? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I like it a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because the other thought that kind of sprang out of what we were saying earlier on is how these old systems of measurement and control worked really well at a point in time, but now, you know, things are changing too quickly. In the climate uh, example, well, the tools we're trying to use are management control. Like we're, we're trying to, to, to set targets. We're trying, we're trying to try to measure, control, punish, reward on the basis of, of pretty limited uh, verticals. But we're in a situation where things are moving very, very quickly. If you take a kind of a wartime analogy, you know, where, where, where we're supposed to be kind of going onto a war footing because, you know, we need to be doing things, things very, 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 very urgently. And in a wartime footing, we need to be doing or building a whole bunch of tanks, which are very, very similar. You know, you don't want to want to be stepping back and, and letting people kind of say, well, just build me the greatest tank you can build. You said, no, I want 100 of those. You know, I don't want one of these amazing ones, I want 100 of those. How does this all fit in the, the climate world? <clears throat> Oh, let me say the positive, start with the positive. I'd say that that's going to be better than nothing. 
having a metric, especially if it is kind of key and behind the CEO's desk kind of metric, it will create a movement, a sort of like, for instance, um, this, I guess the Unilever example is Paul Paulson making it a criteria of how he judged success. I think that that was a heck of a lot better than doing nothing. And I know that it doesn't always work out perfectly, but better to shun, shun, shed some light on it than none because it kind of like causes us to react to it. But I think what I hear you saying is if that becomes kind of a tick boxing exercise, we might miss the forest for a couple of trees. And we might do a hundred little kind of insignificant things that doesn't really stop climate change, but miss one of the innovations that could have changed it all because we're over investing our small little piddling amounts of energy in small initiatives that are easy to count but aren't the real thing. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're just focusing in on this kind of, you know, the top down look um, and just essentially carbon counting, it's really hard to have an emotional connection with yeah. that. Like, and so how do you, like, how would you advise the climate movement? That was a big question, but to get that away from carbon counting and into mm-hmm. um, an emotional connection to something that is, it is something that the planet mm-hmm. should be something that you're intuitively connected to. It would seem. But it isn't because people are, look, are trying, to, trying to get it down to a really, really simple kind of, no, we just need to be looking at that mm-hmm. one metric. Mm-hmm. I saw this comic recently in the New Yorker where there was um, a father and a son in tattered, ragged clothes around a little campfire. And the father was telling the son, I know it seems really messed up now. For a couple of years, though, we had really good profits. And the idea is kind of like, we could ruin it all so easily if we just take our eye off the ball. But most of us have taken our eye off the ball. It's funny, including this conversation, if we're honest, because sitting around talking about it is really different from being actively doing a thing about it. It's very interesting. Um, And of course, the answer for me would be, if I knew what those things were, I probably would be out there doing them. But if you're asking, how do we increase the emotional connection between what people do and saving the world, I wonder, again, I don't want to harp on this, but I do want to go back to local action and activity would mean that from where you're sitting and standing each day, there are certain things that you're willing and able to change. So like, for instance, (laughs) it sounds like a tiny little thing, but I ride my bike to work. It isn't everything, but it is a thing that I can do that allows me to say, okay, that's one tick box. And then I also try to like promote that in and around London. It wouldn't be everybody's thing, but trying to promote bike riding around London, oh, well, sequel. If everybody did that in every city, then it would be less cut, blah, 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 blah. Maybe it's the case that we all can connect to our local actions and do our, our bit to help, but that's not going to change what CEOs of large organizations do. But we would need them to be able to say, oh my gosh, that's true. I need to start actively prioritizing this. Um, one last thought that I have, and again, this isn't a solution. It's more of like pointing to a problem. The way that we incentivize senior leaders, I think also still primarily functions off of profitability with small little bits here and there around sustainable action. And so even at that level, it might often make not only no sense, but bad sense for them to stop a line of operation that's really profitable, 
even if it's destroying the environment, because that's their, you know, quarter of their pay, you know, might be 15 million. And so I think even at that level, we're kind of hamstrung by how we sort of used to try to, and still do, steer behavior through incentives based on metrics, as opposed to having what you might call real leadership, where you're, you're looking around the world and saying, this shit's broken. How do I go about helping my organization of 40, 60, 80,000 people address it? Yeah, yeah that's, a little, that's a little hopeless. Mm, it is a bit. Okay, well, let's try and make it a little bit more positive. How can, um, from one of the one of the, the, the themes of the book is kind of how play and experimentation can mm. help. Could you talk a little bit about that and how maybe we could be kind of a bit more playful yes. and uh, creative about uh, you know, this, this particular problem? That's right. Um, well, one thing that's true is mammals play. You know, so if we start there, uh, the reason why I think that that's worth putting out there is lots and lots of leadership teams that I work with, especially in banking right now, they don't feel that their employees have the capacity to experiment, to try new things. It's been shut off for so long that they're almost believing that that could never happen here. So sometimes it is worth going back to basics and saying, all mammals play. We all have a circuitry in our brain that when it has the safety, it wants to be curious and it wants to be excited about trying new things and experimenting. It's there. That's step one. Step two might be around... Um, again, I'm going to take this hackathon idea and I'm going to like, try, you know, sort of run it up that, the flagpole again. If it were the case that an organization cared enough, big if, it would be possible to allow at the local level employees to try to think new thoughts and play around with which one of those thoughts moves the needle. I'm thinking, um, I once wrote a book called Change to Strange. It was about the Durham engine facility. They made airplane engines in North Carolina. And by allowing individual teams, self-managed teams, to look at the metrics that we had to match, but then think about doing them in a way that saved energy, that saved money, that saved resources, that aided our health. (laughs) Thinking about their own health now. Each of these teams were able to come up with methodologies, say 15 teams of 15 people. They came up with different approaches. They invented them. Senior leaders didn't tell them to do them. But after six months of allowing, unleashing this creativity, um, accidents and safety got better by about 40%, 50%. Now, a lot of it was little, little things like repetitive stress injuries, back problems from lifting wrong. But, you know, they were at work more often. They were sick in the hospital less. Um, They brought the cost of production down and the waste in production down by about 20 to 25%. And this isn't like a 20-year-old engine. Now, these aren't R&D engineers. These are assembly people. These are basically um, people with grease under under their fingernails that do mechanics work. But my point is that by allowing, it's simply like allowing people to think harder about what it is that we're trying to accomplish and ways to do that where we use less energy, where we hurt our, ourselves less, be it you know, psychologically or physically. I just have a, <laughs> this is funny, I have a lot of faith in humans' ability to innovate and learn and then teach senior leaders, here's a different way that we could do this. I do still think that we're not activating that part of the brain very often 
We're often trying to do what we did yesterday, but 2% less in the way that we tell you. You Use this script or follow this methodology as opposed to let's start with what we need to do in order to be successful. That's the frame of operations. Now, your freedom is to figure out how to do that more effectively and with less waste, let's say. I think that there is so much ground to be made there. And I also am excited that that doesn't take a huge budget. It takes sort of some risk-taking and some forward-looking leaders. But it, you don't have to H- ask HR for a £2 billion budget. Now, on the kind of similar enough thing, we kind of extension of that, uh, you've talked um, previously about the dangers of transparency. That seems to be the one, the one tool that people are trying to use to, to fight climate. You know, it's just like we need, all need to be transparent. We all need to be making all these disclosures. But you know, you've, you've, you've explained very well about why there da- is a danger to transparency. You'd like to I'll give you two longer. examples. And by the way, I still think transparency is better in the long run. So I'll, I will just make that blanket statement. I think that sometimes it gets almost too much credit. And what we did is we isolated a couple of places where it can cause trouble. And one of them is around pay. In particular, around when you are very clear and open about who is making how much and what bonuses are based on, you almost give people the ability to game which of those metrics they'll do. And when they follow the metrics to the letter of the law but aren't thinking, they almost have evidence that I deserve a certain amount. Where somebody else might have missed their metrics but did the right thing. It's, metrics are based on what we knew last year. If you did the right thing in the meantime and then you actually solve the problem, you might be the one that actually deserves the biggest reward. But based on the transparency and the, let's call it the scale or the methodology. So by being uber transparent about that, you could be creating social comparison that leads to greed and envy. You could be creating people gaming the how of it instead of thinking good thoughts about the why of it. I think that that's one possible problem around um, transparency that uh, leaders could think about. A second one is around innovation and trying new things and like creative teams. There's some really interesting research that if you allow transparency the whole way through the creative process, a lot of times it looks like failure. And if leaders or senior leaders are looking in and they're seeing that bit of failure, their heart seizes up. And a lot of times what's needed are windows or gates where you allow transparency at certain points, at gates, let's call them. But in the meantime, it's got to be messy. You've got to make the sausage at some point. And that making of the sausage is failure after failure after failure until you figure it out the way. And if you have something that will throw in the towel a little bit too early, you could really be tying your hands behind your back by allowing full transparency. Mm. Oh, absolutely agree. Yeah, you need to have room to be able to make mistakes along the way. And it's, it's the balance between taking risks and accepting failures. Could we go on to the... Uh, you have this really lovely analogy on the kind of the, 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 the whiff of cat fur. Uh-huh. And, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, how the whiff of cat fur might make people, people freeze up. Do you like to kind of have, have a little, little chat on that as well? Yeah. <clears throat> it's one of the coolest things I've learned in the last 15 years. It really is. I love it because it deals with mammals and not just humans. And so if you just imagine a room full of cages and you put two mice in each cage, they play, they chase each other around at a pretty large rate, by the way. It's like 49 times a day they're trying to play. It's very endemic to being a mammal to, to try to play and like see what you're capable of, I guess. Anyway, in half the cages, they put this cat fur in, which is a natural predator, and so the mice lock up. 
they lock up, they stop all play. So it goes from 49 times a day to zero, but only in the cages where there's cat fur. So this is already kind of interesting because it shows that when you create threat and fear, you shut off the part of the brain that gets recruited for play. You shut off the seeking system. That, that's already a really important insight for leaders. It used to be that if you showed a lot of fear, what you did is you, you made people afraid and they focused on the threat. That's what you wanted. Nowadays, what we want them to focus on is innovation and creativity, which is a, um, it's more of a seeking system response, not a fear response. The, the secondary part of this, and I don't know if you remember this bit, they then took the cat fur out. I really love this part too. So they take the cat fur out and you might think play resumes. It doesn't. It doesn't that day or even that week and sometimes not even that month. And when it does start coming back, it comes back very tentatively because bad is stronger than good. And as an optimist, I hate to admit it, but fear and threat are stronger than curiosity and, and excitement. If you put them in a boxing match, I'm afraid that fear and threat win, they clobber harder. And I even think that's evolutionary. I, I think that if you're being chased by something that's going to kill you, it's not the time to be innovative and creative and joyful. It's a matter of saving your life. And when you're safe, then you can afford to be playful and experiment and learn. And I actually think that's, that's very probably evolutionarily wired. But what it means as a leader is if you get that that whiff of cat fur, you very well may not get innovation and creativity. Fair. And if you take the same mouse and put it into a different place without the whiff, do, I do, love do, that they, do they get there? My gut would tell, this is just my gut, I don't have the study. The mouse that has never whiffed it would be soliciting play, but the other one would not follow along with the play at first. I do know uh, Martin Seligman has done some really interesting and sad research around learned helplessness, where he would shock dogs and make them learn how to be helpless. He, it was quite difficult for him to help them help themselves again after they learned that, but he could do it by very gently and slowly showing them that they wouldn't get shocked anymore. They were able to learn how to respond to shocks again. So there's probably an analogy to humans that if you, let's say in a bank, and you've really hurt people for innovation because it led to some scandals or something, and now you've really locked them down, and now nobody's allowed to innovate, and now all of a sudden you want them, you might have to start small, half-day hackathon, micro-innovation lab, you know, nothing really big, just showing people, look, we tried some stuff, nobody got hurt, the CEO didn't yell at us, we didn't lose our races. <laughs> Start small. Very good, very good. Um, and organizations trying to think like sustainability is growing um, as, a, as, a, as a topic um, and hopefully will continue to do so. Um, and going back to your kind of your, your, your roots, uh, like I think your, your PhD was on recruitment. And um, how would you um, suggest that people try and recruit the, go about recruiting the, the sustainability leaders of tomorrow? That is such a great question. First thing that jumps into my mind is, would we be able to invent a behavior mechanism where you watched how people acted? So rather than asking in an interview question, because that's kind of the obvious thing, let's develop an interview question in which you blah, blah, blah. And we can do that. We can talk about that. What jumps to mind that's more compelling and pragmatic is create a setting in which they 
enter the building or enter the room and have to react to something because then their natural tendencies or proclivities or values would shine through as opposed to giving you a cognitive response to what they think you want to hear in order to get the job. You know, again, the gaming problem. So I don't know, like it would take us a little while, but we could think hard about the sorts of behaviors in the organization that would promote sustainability. And we could think about, I mean, whether that was um, shutting off the light when they left a room. I know that's tiny and funny, but like whether it was um, reusing a cup or taking a, a fresh cup or whether they were, whether they had ideas about the way that the organization um, could um, deal with the trash and send the trash, but um, something about them acting as opposed to just giving a pat response is what jumps to mind first. And just take, take the next, um, you've recruited them, um, how do you onboard them? Mm -hmm. And in order to inject sustainability values from the beginning, right? Exactly. I would say almost nothing could be more powerful than taking them on a physical adventure, a physical experience where they witness the organization acting at its best when it comes to sustainability. Day one, day two. I mean, right at the beginning. A little bit like what I told you about that Rabobake example. A little bit like on the first or second day, you get one chance to make a first impression. And they're showing up. And one of the things that's highlighted is the company's obvious pride in solving this issue to do with sustainability or being out in the customer base and seeing the way we do business promote sustainability. I honestly, it'd be far stronger than a PowerPoint deck. It'd be far stronger than the CEO saying we care a lot about sustainability. Again, going back to witnessing it and having the emotions around it would tie you directly to the impact in a way that words and value statements and even games within the organization wouldn't be able to prove it in the same way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How would you suggest people then recruit for change mm -hmm. as opposed to mm -hmm. recruiting to maintain the status quo? Like, you know, mm -hmm. your natural instinct is to be recruiting people who are like you. How, how, do, you, how do you recruit for innovation? Okay. There's a recruiting and there's an onboarding again. Um, when we talk about recruiting, if we're saying um, the sorts of tests or trials that you could put people through to test their mettle, to see what they're really all about. Um, going back to that General Electric story, I'll tell, you a, I'll tell you a quick way that they hired. First off, how impressive. The teams themselves decided if and when they were going to hire, and when they did, the teams, and these are mechanics, they themselves did the interviewing and the hiring. HR would help, but they had to decide. One of the things they did that I'll never ever forget is because what mattered there is working like a team, working communally. They wanted to test for that. So what they did is they brought 10 candidates in in a day and they put them in a room and then they created two teams randomly. And um, each team got like a little flip chart, a little like cover. And they said on the other side of that cover, that little flip chart, there's a model airplane. And then they gave each person three or four pieces of Legos. And they said, your job as a group of five is to replicate as best you can that airplane. You get four trips and you cannot touch each other's pieces go. And then all of a sudden this hush descended and everybody's looking at each other to, like what to do. And so what I saw is two different tensions. One tension is between the teams. 
because now your team wants to win and we want to win. Two seconds ago, we were just job candidates. Now we're on a team. We want to win. Second one is within our team, I want the freaking job. I want to stand out. I want to be the winner. So what would inevitably happen is somebody would jump up and go and look to see and try to be the hero. But what they don't know is that they're showing they wouldn't work well on a team. They're proving that their values are lone wolf. The person who'd probably get the job would start by saying, okay, why don't we start with, if we only have four trips, who's not going? Does anybody hate Legos? They basically, by facilitating that conversation, showed that their values were communal and team-oriented. Anyway, it didn't matter which team won in the end. What mattered is the way that they facilitated what they call consensus. I would say, if we're starting to look for people that drive change, that create change, I would say at that level of learning about the people, create a setting or a simulation where they have to think outside the box, where they have to either, you could even do something where we've kind of worked out the best practices that usually do the best, you can just follow those, or you can come up with your own approach. And the ones that went with the normal best practices, they probably aren't like the people that are wired for change and people that kind of, but you also can look at how well the solutions they came up with solved the problem. So not just something different, but something different that worked. I think that I could help affirm with that. That's the sort of thing that I really love doing with companies and I've worked with companies on before. I would say a second thing that I would say is you mentioned onboarding, like kind of what we do the first day. It's actually really interesting research that you don't want to give people all the answers right at the beginning. You don't want to give them clear-cut scripts of this is the way you act, this is the people that you meet. You want to leave ambiguity. You want to create space in their schedule. You want to give them sort of tasks and broad goals, but not get them locked into immediate productivity if what you want is to encourage more of a pioneering attitude. You don't want them to necessarily accept the existing scripts and ways of behavior. You want them, see, fresh people have the best, newest ideas. What you want to do is give them a taste of what they're capable of and learn from them what they might do with a fresh brain and celebrate their newness. You could say this way, like draw out their newness rather than kind of locking it away. So many firms, it's quite interesting, they spend a lot of money hiring really smart, capable people with great new ideas, and then they teach them all the ways that we already do things that are less than par. And it actually gets in the way of what you're saying, which is first we have to find them, and then we have to keep the ones that we find alive. And I think that we could be a lot more strategic and smart about that, to be honest. Brilliant. Okay, if just one last question. Is there one final piece of advice you could give to leaders of an organization who are trying to build sustainability? So how can you have that kind of systemic change that will stick and stay? Absolutely. What I'd love to do is just briefly mention these three triggers of the seeking system because not only do they help the employees stay alive and awake to creating change, to being innovative, essentially, around this issue of sustainability or anything else, frankly. But second off, it hits directly on the part of sustainability, which is employees' mental and physical health. These three triggers of the seeking system are, number one, you create these safe spaces. And it might only be once a year or maybe once a quarter, but somewhere invest in safe spaces where people feel that they can experiment, try something new to help the organization. There's so much that can be said about this. You try to create an environment where people feel safe to speak up so that they can challenge authority when they see authority doing something wrong. 
However you can create that psychological safety, I'd say that's number one. could write a whole book about that. Number two is this notion of emphasizing people's unique strengths. Rather than trying to have them lock into the way it's always been done, celebrating the unique skills, perspectives, values, diverse um, backgrounds, celebrating that and trying to see how can we use that to do our business better, I think there is so much interesting evidence that when people feel that sense of belonging, that I'm valued for who I am, organizations flourish, teams flourish. There's so much to be said. That's another book. And then the third one, um, this idea about personalizing purpose. We did a pretty good job of talking about that. But this personalizing purpose, to repeat it, is how do you, in a visceral, emotional way, let people experience the effect of their actions instead of just hearing about it? Let them meet the people that they affect. I think that it goes such a long way toward personalizing the meaning of what they do all day, and it can fit within the broader umbrella of like the purpose statement. Fantastic. Thank you so much oh, for your time. Really that, was, that was it's absolutely yeah, been, been great fun. Been great fun. Thank you so much. Lovely. Thank you very much for joining us on that conversation. We hope that you enjoyed it hope that you uh, learned something. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to any of our channels and we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. This series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. These are conversations that you just can't afford to miss.